our tents were maybe 100, 200 yards away. We were trying to make our way towards them and then the whiteout came and we were just huddled together. One of the scariest moments I've spent on a mountain because you can hear the crackling charge in the air and we just prayed. We just said, God, open up a window for us to see our tents. And we did this for probably about 40, 45 minutes. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Joining us today is Ark Explorer Kevin DeVries, featured in the documentary Finding Noah. In addition to being a world traveler, Kevin's a preacher and founder of a ministry called Grace Explorations. Kevin, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. We're, uh, we're honored to have you with us, and, and we're really excited to hear about your story in search of the Ark. Um, it's a little bit surreal. It seems as though taking a story that many of us have heard from, well, those of us who have been subjected to any of the Christ story, taken from Bible class, and bring that fast forward into uh, real life and have that become an actual part of a conversation is pretty neat. So I'm just really eager to get into some of the details uh, regarding Noah's Ark and the expedition that took place uh, in search of Noah's Ark. Give us a little bit of an idea about your background. Where are you from? Well, um, my parents are both Dutch immigrants, actually uh, Frisian immigrants. So they came from Friesland, uh, one of the northern provinces of the Netherlands. Uh, they both survived World War II. Uh, Dad was born in 37, so he experienced the war from age three to age eight. And my mother was actually born on the eve or fairly close to the eve of World War II. So her first five years were the five years of, of war in uh, occupied Holland. So uh, my parents lived through a lot, uh, which may lend itself to the fact that they allowed me to do all these crazy adventures and didn't really blink an eye because after all they had crossed oceans you know to get here to america and had lived through uh, nazi occupation so yeah my parents are both dutch immigrants they came uh, over on the boat in the 50s uh, my mom with her family my dad came alone he already had some family that was here europe at that point was just trying to rebuild itself uh, parts of the netherlands like rotterdam and and certainly in the industrial centers were bombed into oblivion and so literally the netherlands at that point was just trying to rebuild itself from the ground up and it took quite a bit of time so because of the economic collapse there and just the fact that they saw these men dropping from the sky canadian paratroopers or u.s ground forces it was just this idea that wow these guys came from over the sea and they rescued us they must come from a great land of promise and plenty. So I think it embedded itself in their consciousness and, uh, you know, in, in their minds, America became what um, certainly Reagan coined, you know, the whole idea of a, of a shining city upon a hill. And so they became enamored with the promise of America. And so they came, they didn't make it too far from the boat. Uh, they actually, the ship rather, boat is what you get on when the ship sinks. So I have to be careful how I say that. But uh, after disembarking, they uh, were processed through Ellis Island. So their names are on, you know, the memorials there, um, yeah. part of that history. And then they went through Hoboken, were processed there. And then they came to Northwest New Jersey. They didn't know each other until they came to this country, but uh, through another, I call it a Dutch ghetto, if you will, um, <laughs> they uh, immigrated and it was a very agri-based community up in the extreme Northwest New Jersey. And so they um, 
yeah, they met, and my dad was from a family of butchers, so he continued uh, being a butcher. Uh, my mother's line was actually a mixture of butchers and bakers, so I guess we just needed the candlestick maker at that point. But <laughs> they uh, they merged together, of course, and and got married. And so I grew up actually in Northwest New Jersey on the East Coast, and uh, along with my three siblings, and we lived there until the end of my elementary years. So the first twelve years, I was out east. And then we moved to Florida for a bit, and then uh, we've been in Michigan since uh, 81. So my high school years were actually in Michigan, moving forward into my adult life, and my junior high was in Florida. So we kind of ping-ponged around a little bit. My parents are obviously used to doing that, being immigrants. And so, you know, their story is one that's rather haunting. It has a lot of parallels to uh, Corey Ten Boom, whose story became famous with The Hiding Place. So my family was involved in hiding Jews and being involved in Dutch resistance. Uh, some of whom paid the ultimate price and you know went to concentration camps and, and no disappeared. Kidding. So there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of legacy there. I'm very proud to be part of a family line that did the right thing when it actually meant something and when it cost you something. So you know, I just I grew up with a very strong spiritual foundation. Uh, church has been a part of our human experience as a family line for probably half a millennia, dating back to the birth of the Reformation. So I can go to churches in Friesland and see every pastor my family's had since like the 1620s or 30s. I can wow. go to a graveyard and see several hundred years of my bloodline there. And I think that's part of the whole idea of story is because we're such a melting pot in America and because we're such a hodgepodge of all these different people coming from all these foreign forgotten shores landing on the the shores of America, we we don't know our stories. We don't have a thread. Yeah, that's Um, more and more rare, at least. Yeah, we just don't know. You know, it's like if you go back one generation, we're clueless. You know, we just don't have a context for that. So I'm very fortunate to not only understand or comprehend maybe the epic spiritual story that we're in that predates all of us into eternity um, before time even began, but I'm also fortunate enough to at least know I come from a long line of people, and uh, although they have their faults in recent history, you know, within the last century or so, when when push came to shove, faith is what held the family line together. That was the glue. Yeah. So these stories that we're talking about, particular to the Ark, uh, you know, I can remember all those in Sunday school and the flanograms and or the flannel board and you know all the characters that the Sunday school teacher would put on the board and move them around. And so I've always been quite enamored with the Noah story and the story of the deluge and the flood. I think it speaks to some really deep undercurrents in our own life that we barely can begin to comprehend. It's, I think we're all yearning for some type of rebirth, some type of resurrection, some type of uh, a rite of baptism, if you will, where our past can be washed away and we can begin to embrace a new genesis. And I think that a lot of the people that I meet in my travels now find this story so enamoring, not just because it's a big story, it's a meta-narrative, it's in 500 different cultures around the world, Mm. long before mass global communication. The Uh, flood story you're talking about. Yeah, it's like everywhere. But I think that it it connects with somebody on a deep level because we all yearn for a resurrection. Mm. We want a new start, we want a fresh beginning. We want to somehow stop punishing our past and being afraid of our future, and we want to be you know, incredibly present. Um, and I think we, we, we hunger for that and we're not even mm. aware of it. And so I think the, the flood story encapsulates that feeling really well. It mm. captures it. Yeah. And some of the, some of the phrases that you just used about past, present, and future, um, I think you 
are, are attempting to uh, to kind of dissect in some of your uh, your men's groups, which you call base camp. And I think we're going to circle uh, back to, to kind of your your early childhood, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about what Kevin's got going on later on in the show with some of his uh, with some of his ministries, uh, which he dubs base camp. Um, so interesting, Kevin. You actually come from a, a long line of Dutch folks, and uh, De Vries is actually I, ironic, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> right? Uh, came from the same clan that fought the Romans or something. Potentially, yeah. potentially. But wow, what a fascinating story! So, mom and dad, both from northern province of Netherlands yeah. called Friesland, came in on the same boat, but did not know each other. Uh, not the same boat. Actually, they were separated by, I think my mom came in 52 and my dad came in 57. Okay. But both had been exposed to Nazi-occupied yes. Holland yep. in the 40s. And the memories that are attached to that and the collective trauma that a whole entire people group felt of being told when you can eat, what you can eat, and you're, you're basically subservient. It first started out very benign and kind of benevolent. Oh, yeah. this would be great. You know, I actually got my parents some. It actually got better on the front end of it. And, and that was that was Hitler's master oh, plan. Sure, propaganda all the way. Sure. So slowly the vice got, kept getting turned and turned into the point, you know, towards the end of the war, uh, Holland and all the occupied countries, France and Belgium and um, other countries as well, they were just being drained of their resources to keep the, the German war machine afloat. Mm. So you're... you're st- immigration story actually starts quite a bit later than mine. My great-grandfather immigrated in 1907, and he actually made his first move to West Michigan. Wow. Um, so I'm technically a fourth-generation Grand Rapidian, wow. <laughs> but uh, his story is is a little bit different, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but I just find so much pleasure in discussing uh, the, the background of a, a common debris. I think that's a pretty cool element to, to today's show. Well, we're, peop- we're people of the sea. Yeah. You know, we've we've always, uh, Friesland started in uh, southern Denmark at one point and it went all the way from the northern part through Germany, the shoreline through uh, the Netherlands, all the way to uh, northern Belgium. So Interesting. we're people that are actually bred to explore. I mean, we're people of the sea. We've always liked that unlimited horizon in front of us. It's fantastic. I can't wait to hear more about it and I'll probably learn a few things along the way. So you ultimately uh, ended up from Jersey to Florida, and then you spent your high school years in Lansing area. Right. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So once you got to Michigan, uh, what was life like? Did you have siblings? Did you grow up uh, in a in a tight knit community, or was it more uh, loosely associated with friends and family? Um, just give us some of those details that uh, that kind of bring us up to your your early adulthood. Yeah. So um, I'm a product of Christian schools. Um, okay. I have three siblings. I have an older sister, a younger brother, and a younger sister. My older sister lives in the Lansing area still, along with my parents, who are still both alive. I'm very grateful for that. Wow. Dad, Dad just turned 80 this uh, past summer, so uh, extremely grateful for every year that we have with them. I have a brother who is in Omaha, Nebraska, and a sister that's actually in Chicagoland. So okay. we're all kind of somewhat, scattered. Yeah, we're kind of here, there, and everywhere. But um, So, yeah, I went to high school in Lansing, a great biblical foundation, a great school there. I went to Lansing Christian High School. Okay. Uh, ninth through twelfth, it just so happened that it worked out that way that I we moved during my ninth grade year, and so very fortunate to have that again another building block of stories and theology and orthodoxy, and um, but it also exposed me to a lot of other different faiths. Uh, it wasn't specifically run by a particular church or denomination, okay. um, and so I got a I was developing an appreciation for my Catholic friends and for Eastern Orthodox, and so. 
it was just a good good place to grow up. And that's where, incidentally, during my senior year in high school, I felt a calling or a pull towards ministry. I had a dramatic experience with uh, the third part of the Trinity in my senior year of high school that uh, exposed me to a whole realm of experiences that were biblically based that I hadn't been exposed to before, specific to like the book of Acts and how the church flourished and how the promise came after Christ ascended. Uh, the third part of the Trinity was the became, Holy Spirit. Yeah, it became very to. became very real to the right. disciples, and they had uh, you know everything from a, a different language, if you will, to just this empowerment. And so that became part of my spiritual experience. I had a really really good foundation. Point some of our listeners toward that. So if they're if they're curious, they can go read that for themselves. It's in the Book of Acts. Do you know the chapter offhand? Um, I think it's like in the third and fourth, you know, it's the whole day of Pentecost and Glossalia and, you know, the, the tongues that were spoken of that day was uh, connecting with all the people that were gathering for the religious festivals that were happening in uh, Jerusalem at the time. And so, you know, it has a very missional aspect of it. People were wondering what was happening to these men. You know, it was nine o'clock in the morning. Are you drunk? You know, why are you speaking in these tongues, if mm. you will? So, um, you know, it's, it's something that has been around for a long, long time. I think we have to be very careful that we don't become consumed with the gift and we focus more on the giver and we don't become obsessed with the experience. We look for the eternal. Mm-hmm. So um, it just exposed me to a whole realm of, of the miraculous mm-hmm. that I didn't even know existed. Of okay. Just, wow, people are praying for the sick and they're actually being healed. And man, what's this deliverance thing? I thought that was like something maybe Catholic priests did, like an exorcism. <laughs> but, I mean, it was New Testament. People were getting healed and... Uh, things that were in their life that needed to be they needed to be delivered from. So we just kind of looked at the book of Acts and just said, well, hey, let's just continue these chapters. Hmm. You know, the story doesn't have to end. Hmm. Just because we're uncomfortable with it or because it doesn't appear the same way it happened in the Bible doesn't mean that we should throw the whole thing out, hmm. you know, like we do with a baby with a dirty bathwater. Bath so senior year, you had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It prompted you in some way. What, what, what did that prompt point toward? Well, this particular encounter that I had with the Holy Spirit uh, gave me the first tangible miracle in my life that just gave me verifiable bedrock experience that miracles do exist. So it just ignited everything inside of me. Um, I heard somebody say that the Reformed theology or the Reformed people or Christian Reformed or just people that come out of the Reformed theology as a whole, whether it's Presbyterian, Lutheran or... Um, Christian form, yeah, everything yeah. Uh, out of that tradition. They're they're like uh, hickory logs. They're they're oak logs, and they they burn slow, and it takes a while to catch them on fire. They're not like kindling wood, but when they catch on fire, there's a slow burn effect to it because they have the substance and they have all the right ingredients to to make uh, something burn for a long time. And I think that's was basically my story. I had an incredible foundation, and then wow, this life came in, and now all of a sudden. I'm seeing the book of Acts come alive because prior to that, it was just the Gospels and, and then the book of Revelation. Nobody knew what to do with that one. So you yeah. just kind of disregard that. Maybe that's poetic imagery or something. But the full gospel, I know that's a coined phrase, became very alive to me to the extent where I just felt like, you know what, God, if you could call me the ministry, that would be wonderful because I don't want to do anything else other than this. Cool. I want to be part of a biblical community. I want to pray for people. I want to see the Bible come alive. And I felt like he not only... Um, called, but there was a chosen aspect of it. And that's a golden thread that seems to be woven throughout my life is um, this whole idea that when God calls, he never hangs up. Hmm. We won't get to it today, but I was called into the ministry and served for a decade. And then that's a whole other story 
uh, that involves an exit and an exile that follows after that. But I began to understand, having now come through that exile period, the wilderness, the desert, the cave, whichever metaphor you want to pick, um, I now understand that when God calls, he never hangs up. Hmm. And the, sh- the, the silence that you hear on the other end of the line is not his blame, but it's your own shame. And so I felt like my dad kept reminding me over that whole course of time when I was just doing well and then not so well in business. Um, he just said, Kev, there's a call in your life and it's irrevocable. Hmm. And uh, God's going to weave it back together again. And, and he never gave up. He never stopped believing, even when I stopped believing and didn't have any interest ever in, in engaging people on a ministry level again. So ministry looks a lot different for me now, but that's, again, a whole other story. But yeah. it just goes to show that there are golden threads in every man, woman, and child's life. And the key is to find that golden thread because that golden thread is your calling. A lot of us get obsessed with assignments and certain chapters that we're in, but the calling part is the thing that you don't find, it finds you. And mm-hmm. it's the thing that you don't have to turn on it's the, the it's, it's always there. on. Yeah, it's, it's always there. on, and it's that's part of, part of you. It's DNA. It's it, your fabric. Yep. Now. It's yeah. your glory that you bring back that represents the image of Christ to to the world. That's neat. All right. So senior year, you uh, you have an encounter with uh, with the third part of of the Christian Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, and you feel compelled to uh, to dive deep, and you get involved in the ministry. You undergo uh, a series of events that maybe we can talk about at, in more depth at a later time, but uh, ultimately you find an exit from the ministry. Where along this path did you encounter adventure and, and your, your expedition for ultimately what we're going to talk about today, which is an unbelievable five-year journey on the mountains of central Turkey? Yeah, and uh, far east. Far east? Yeah. Okay, so eastern Turkey. We're on the border of Iran. It's right there. Yeah. How how did you get your start um, in in an exploratory setting, shall we say? Well, uh, first I'll begin with this statement. Um, whatever you cannot internalize, you'll externalize. So a lot of people are doing extreme things or they're acting out or they're engaging in, in uh, what I would consider to be red line activities. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to mean climbing mountains. It could be anything. It's just things that you're doing in your life that you actually don't even feel like you're in control. It's mm. something that it's, there's an engine underneath the hood that's driving you and you can't figure out what this subterranean force is. So when I went through my first divorce in 99, that's again, a whole other story in and of itself. Okay. I basically went through a period where I just felt like I had lost my head. I, I couldn't even, I would, my whole compass was spinning. I was experiencing vertigo. And so I thought, you know what, I need a reset button. I need to do something to get outside this this uh, merry-go-round and figure out how do I get back to center again. And so just on a whim, it was in, in uh, the summer of 99. Um, I had already run some marathons up until that point. I'd kayaked all the five Great Lakes uh, expedition kayaking. So I had explored the Midwest and the best that it had to offer, but we have no mountains. We have no, you know, really... Um, accentuated topography right so I thought you know let's just climb a mountain I thought oh this would be kind of cool so signed up with a couple friends and we chose Rainier because it appealed to everything that a mountain is you know it's uh, aesthetically pleasing and it's also challenging and it's kind of a microcosm of of uh, maybe the Brooks Range in Alaska or um, the Himalayas or the Himalayas whichever you prefer in um, in Asia and so we went and we went through a crash course on um yeah glacier climbing and so uh it was like a weekend warrior kind of thing and i went with three other friends and 
they just pushed us through. We found out after the fact that they had X amount of climbing permits, but only X amount of summit permits. And so they actually were counting on a high attrition rate along no the kidding. way. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Oh, so I could, they, I, back up a second. I didn't even realize that. No, I didn't either. One of their so competing. outfitters will actually have licenses for A, climbing. Yeah. And then they have to have separate licenses to summit? Well, at least in this particular situation, this is back in 99 and Rainier, but the company that we went with, which will remain nameless, basically <laughs> they dominated like 90 some odd percent of the climbing market there. Okay. They'd been around for a long time. Okay. And so they had a, a stranglehold on it and uh, their competitors who I climbed with later on, another guy company explained that to me that uh, the reason why they push all their climbers so hard is they, they need a high attrition rate because they only have so many summit permits. It's something in the language and I'm sure it's changed since then. Actually it has because okay. Mount Rainier is more of a, an open market now as far as guide companies that can come in. Okay. But long story short, um, I was the only one that summited out of our group. So I summited a complete group of strangers. I didn't think they were going to do this because they, they threatened us. They said, if you're not doing well, we're going to unclip you from your rope team We'll have a sleeping bag. We'll take your crampons on. We'll put a headlamp on. Yeah, right on the mountain. I was like, really? I thought they were just kind of, you know how it is. They just kind of jostle you around. But sure enough, you know, we slept in the mirror, uh, camp mirror in in this three loft high room with 40 snoring people. And all the heat rose to the top. So it was actually burning up because we got in there late. They wake up at two or three in the morning. They're putting these avalanche beacons on. You're like, what the heck is this all about? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I literally, we were just clueless. I mean, we're just a bunch of flatlanders from the Midwest. So they put a helmet on. They put this <laughs> this avalanche beacon that's like beeping. And I'm like, uh, what what is this thing? Might as well be a shot. Yeah, right. Why do I need to be wearing this? Oh, in case you get buried, we'll be able to find you quicker. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's really comforting. So they literally just pushed and pushed and so one friend made it to about 11,000 feet, and then uh, two other friends, actually a married couple, they made it up to, I don't know, maybe uh, another 1,000 feet or more, and, and Rainier is you know, in that mid-14,000-foot range. Okay. And so I got to the top, and I got hooked. It's like, this is my deal. All right. And then at that moment, and shortly thereafter, the seven summits uh, bid came into play. So I actually haven't climbed five of the tallest peaks in the world. I have climbed the five... Uh, of the seven continental peaks oh, okay. on each continent. So I've climbed five of the seven continental peaks or Thanks seven for of them. Thanks clarifying that. Okay. No, no worries. But I just, um, I was like, man, this is perfect. You know, I'm tall. I've got a great VO2 threshold. I've run marathons. I, it just was a natural fit. And so, mm-hmm. but again, I didn't understand the engine under the hood. I was okay. trying to put a spatial element. I was trying to put space between my divorce and the shame of that and the exit mm-hmm. from ministry. And I was trying to overcompensate with this quite frankly, untreated trauma. I didn't even realize what I was doing at the time, but I was trying to... You were running. Yeah, I was on the run. I was leaving yeah. a blood trail. The hounds of of uh, heaven and the hordes of hell were both catching my scent. And so I thought, man, if I just climb high enough or if I ski far enough or if I do something, I'll put enough... Just get away from it all. Just get away from it all and somehow erase my trail. And it, it, it didn't work. Okay. So in our community, we call that taking our medicine or combating the deficit, yeah. which is, is a healthy reset. But it sounds like... In this situation, you were running from something much larger, and, and this was this was potentially a harmful run. Is yeah. that is that accurate or not? Yes. Okay. Um, so you have a choice. When you're in pain, you can either uh, feel it, mm-hmm. and if you can uh, if you can have feeling, then you can have healing. You can't heal without feeling. So mm-hmm. if you can't heal, you can't feel. So there's this leprous effect to trauma, especially when it's untreated that makes you numb. And so a lot of people spend a ton of time medicating their pain because it hurts too much to feel it. Yeah. But there's something about the lack of anesthesia that is necessary for you to heal in this process. So, um, 
Yeah, I was running. I was running for my destiny. Okay. Jonah and the whale, pick whatever metaphor you want. I was I was running, running, running. And uh, sounds like you got pretty pretty far away. Oh yeah, it, I had a lot of gas in the tank. Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so drawn drawn back to um, the story of Ararat. Where did that kind of start to come into play? Where did you first encounter uh, a, an expedition that was going to take place in Eastern Turkey? Okay, so um, that was 2009, and just not just prior, but in that same decade, from like 2002 to 2005, I climbed five of the seven continental summits, and then in 05, I also skied to the North Pole with a group, which Whoa. is part of a nine-point objective. It's called the Explorer's Grand Slam or the Adventure Grand Slam, and it's yeah. essentially doing seven, climbing the seven continental summits and skiing to both the North and South Pole. So I've got six of the nine objectives done. I just need to climb the tallest peak in Asia, which of course is Everest and the tallest peak in Antarctica, which is Mount Vincent, and then ski to the South Pole. Just have to do those three things. That's it. Well, yeah, and they're big money. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if there's a sponsor out there in uh, Cyberland that uh, feels a pull to Your game. brand their pro, oh, I'm there in a heartbeat. Um, so awesome. I had all this background and then this story comes out on the Associated Press and it happened to land in my Yahoo newsfeed. I'm just doing the normal internet thing and all of a sudden I see this headline, Liberty University Professor in Search of Noah's Ark. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I knew a little bit about Ararat. I knew that it was a 17, almost a 17,000 foot peak. Yeah. It appeared that a lot of the guys that were part of this connection were from the south and were probably not mountaineers and probably didn't have a clue as to what they were getting into. Okay. 17,000 feet, you've got about 60% less oxygen than you at sea level. Uh, I didn't understand the geopolitical tensions that were there until I actually arrived, but there's a reason why arc exploration is, is very tenuous at best. Uh, you've got so many adversarial elements that you're, even to get to the base of the mountain, there's so much red tape and political maneuvering that goes on to even get the right permits to be allowed to go to parts of the mountain that nobody else can access. So there, there has to be an interchange or connection with the Turkish government because that's actually now a national park. It's in Turkey. So the permits are actually done through the government in Turkey and through the climbing associations there to be able to go to where we eventually ended up on the Eastern Plateau, which is well off the tourist trail. It's wow. uh, you actually summit and then you go down a, a ridge line that has fairly steep gradients on both sides. And then you go up and over a cornice. It almost looks like a frozen wave, if you will. So you climb up and over that. And then you end up in the glaciated eastern plateau, which is a large caldera, kind of a blown out volcano. It's not hyperdynamic to the extent that the Ahura Gorges, which is like a 6,500 foot drop into nothingness. It's uh, the mountain experience and earthquake in the 1800s that essentially tore off a third of the mountain. So it's a caldera and slowly it's being pushed off into the Ahura Gorge where it's extremely dynamic and there's calving and all this elements that you would experience in a typical dynamic moving glacier. It's somewhat static or stationary. So we felt like along with some of the other scientific surveys that we'd done that that was a strong potential place for Noah's Ark to be resting in this particular area on the mountain because it was primarily secure it wasn't moving around it was secure and so the idea was well i'm kind of getting ahead of it but back to the original part 2009 i read the article and i was like man i, I really want to be a part of this so i tracked down the leader and I actually tracked down dr randall price who was a liberty university professor he was actually the last guy that jerry falwell had hired jerry falwell senior had hired to lead what became now the center of judaic studies so uh, Dr. Price is a expert in, um, I'm not sure if it's Near Eastern or Middle Eastern, but he's an expert in Eastern studies. And so he's lived in Jerusalem, went to Hebrew University. He's led over 100 different uh, study groups to Israel. 
he's a leading archaeologist in his field. He actually was the archaeologist, uh, and I was actually with him in this past January where they found uh, what has now been designated as Cave C12, which is the first designated cave that we know and can verify actually held Dead Sea Scrolls. It's no the first way. of its kind in 60 years. So we've had 11 caves for 60 some odd years and we were digging there in January and there's an elbow in the cave that they had explored. They had explored up to the elbow in the cave, the bend if you will, and hadn't explored beyond that. They did some exploring in the mid 90s and then some civil unrest there and some political issues came up. And so they were able to puncture through that area and found all the anecdotal circumstantial evidence that would be complicit or would feed into the idea that this actually held Dead Sea Scrolls because the broken pottery was there, the goat skin wrappings, the fragments of parchment, papyrus parchment, and um, actually the excavation tools were kind of the dead giveaway because most of those caves were actually poached or uh, sacked. Yeah, illegally mined, if you will, back in the 50s uh, for the most part. And so all the excavation tools were there. So we know people had been in there. In fact, the Arab guy that we were working with, he got kind of sheepish at that point because he realized that those tools were probably his great uncle who was the lead poacher at the time and actually was the young shepherd boy who accidentally found the first cave in 48 when he threw a rock at a goat to get it to move. He was herding goats in the area and it, Come on. it went through a hole in the ground and he heard something shatter and he was like, huh, that's kind of weird. So they dug into the cave and that began the excavation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which has verified every book in the Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther. So uh, everybody's looking for that book now. I mean, that's really the grail of sorts, if you will, because that's the one book that it's it's a bit contestable. You know, it, it doesn't have explicit mention of God. It's a unique book in the Old Testament canon that would be great to be verified, you know, through other archaeological means. Um, I believe the story actually happened uh, with, you know, Esther and certainly a major Jewish festival came out of that whole story with Mordecai and that's the king and all that stuff. But um, anyway, so that's how I got involved in the story. And then I, I just had all this experience and background and adventure. I thought, man, maybe I can make an offer to these guys. And, yeah. So, I mean, you are getting into some really good, spicy stuff. But just so that everybody can keep up, myself included, you sit down, check your Yahoo news feed. You've got five of the seven continental summits under your belt at this point. So you've got some mountaineering chops. You know that you've got that to offer. Already from your Rainier experience, you know that you've got a pretty high threshold or VO2 max, so you can handle you can handle thin air. Yeah. And you've got a you've got kind of a theological background that you've already explored through your tenure as a preacher. Yes. So those three things together are working in your favor and you're going, I gotta track this team down. I need to be on that team. Yes. Okay. I had to convince them uh, because they already had a mountaineer at that point who actually became one of my best friends. Uh, He was going through some domestic issues which were complicating his his own uh, life and he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to come on the expedition that year. So within 30 days of departure, my phone rang and and they're like, can you join us in 30 days? I was like, wow, you know, this is kind of off guard. So I went on a detox diet, dropped about 20 pounds. I wasn't really (laughs) overweight because I'm a tall guy to begin with. but I knew getting on the mountain, every pound counted, and I didn't want to have another rock in my backpack, if you will. So I got down to more optimal weight, was already running at that point, and so just bought a few extra pieces of gear and showed up in 09 and realized very quickly, uh, this is going to be an interesting story. Okay. Uh, most of these guys have never climbed a mountain in their life. Okay. I'm looking at their gear ahead of time, and I realize these guys have bought, they're bringing up two season tents. Yeah which are good for Michigan camping. Yeah. But this is a 17,000 foot mountain. This is no state park. No, this is a 
this is glaciated alpine climbing. And so I, I was like, wow, I, I really hope the weather works out because I was trying to convince them. Some of the guys were so old school. They were going up in leather and cotton. And I'm like, <laughs> really? that's like a death cloth, you know, just go ahead and kill yourself right now while you're at it. Cause the minute you start sweating, this is not like sea level. You're not going to, you're going to turn to an ice cube. And wow. one of our guys actually did that uh, in the following year. He, he wouldn't listen. And I thought, well, I guess we'll have to learn this the hard way, but he turned into a human ice cube. It was so bad. He was hypothermic. He was shaking. He almost oh, tore man. our tent down because he grabbed the tent post. But I enter into the story and I'm like, wow, what's going on? And so all these things are kind of colliding together. And I feel like I'm Frodo and Sam wandering into the the wastelands of Mordor, just figuring out how in the world that I end up in this story. That's wild. So what was, break down just kind of the game plan. So it was, uh, it was an expedition, four of the five, or how, how big was the team, Kevin? Um, we usually we average about a dozen guys. I think on our first year, we were probably a little less than that. Okay. Um, maybe just under a dozen guys, but that was more typical. And primarily uh, academic folks with bi- biblical or theological backgrounds or archaeology archaeological scientific backgrounds not yes. so much mountaineering backgrounds uh that would be correct with the exception of my friend holt who was also a mountaineer and actually was technically a better climber than i was okay. I, I might be a strong climber but he had a lot of uh technical skills so we were a good combination i'm kind of a workhorse and and he had um some really good technical training so between the two of us we were able to cover our bases there but okay. yes now i i want to just say from the outset um it seems like every year somebody finds the ark Okay. You read about it. Yep. Uh, there was a big Chinese expedition kind of in the middle of our five-year expedition that supposedly found the Ark, and it was a big, giant hoax. What they had done was they had uh, essentially taken some wood from a shipwreck in the Black Sea and that wood from an old castle in Iran, and they uh, shipped it up the mountain. I know exactly where it's at. It's right below our 4,200-meter camp. Um, Have you seen it? Well, it's actually in a, it's in a glacier. So oh, okay. it's in a it's very, dead, yeah, and you really only can access that place safely during the non-peak uh, season because you're right above an area that melts off. And so these giant Volkswagen-sized boulders keep tumbling down. It's in this place called the Red Canyon, and it's right at 4,200 meter camp. And so it's a very uh, dangerous place to be in. And what they had done was they, uh, the, the leader of this scam, if you will, basically coerced or tricked a number of the uh, Kurds in the area into believing that they were building a movie set about Noah's Ark. And so they brought all this timber up. He had carpenters come in and they set the wood inside this glacier, allowed it to sit for a year, put some straw and some other, you know, ancient looking relics inside and uh, allowed it to set. So it looked like it was natural, right? No kidding. And then they allowed it to set for a year. And then he brought in a bunch of uh, individuals from Asia who were part of the uh, convention center that's in Hong Kong. I mean, we make a big deal about the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, which people are always joking with me now. You know, they're like, didn't you know the Ark is in Kentucky? You know, why are you looking in? <laughs> yeah. It's down in Appalachia. But uh, anyway, they had this convention center in Hong Kong for many years that uh, is in the shape of the Ark, and it's it's right there in Hong Kong. And so the people that were connected with that project were told that the actual Ark had been found. And so they had some, you know, images captured on video that didn't give the full context they were just done in certain angles and in certain lighting that left a lot to be interpreted and basically it was a big giant hoax yeah and it was unfortunate but that happens every year every time i get up and speak about noah's ark the first question or the first assumption that's being made is i thought it was already found okay and then you have to kind of debunk those things as best you can and just basically state out the facts and the facts are there is no hard scientific data that mm-hmm. proves that Noah's Ark exists on Mount Ararat. Okay, so 
the Chinese came in and tried to uh, tried to establish uh, a discovery story, and it was all kind of broken apart and proved to be a hoax. Yeah. What were what were the the facts that would draw your team into assembling and, and setting out on a, what turned out to be a five year expedition exploring through this glaciated alpine setting where where you guys were enduring quite a bit of misery it sounded like in order to find something that each one of you had to at some point in the core of your beings believe existed yeah well um so with the advent of aviation um the sightings of arc-like structures on mount ararat dramatically increase because now we have the advantage of seeing things from an aerial perspective rather than from the ground up or from sure. boots on the ground so that kicked things in the hyper gear. Uh, during World War II, Yerevan, Armenia was a major allied base. So there was a ton of flights over Ararat because it's right there. I mean, you can see Ararat from Yerevan and actually arguably the best views are from the Armenian side. So there was just a tremendous amount of eyewitness accounts. And then photography came into play and videos, but they were always very granulated, very grainy. Um, and here's the kicker. I hate to say this, but it's true. There, I don't know what it is about that particular mountain, um, but it, it has a number of arc-like structures that are made purely of rock that are all over the mountain. Okay. And every time you get these major meltbacks, especially in the heart of the summer, in the heat of the summer as well, you get these rock-like formations that appear to be protruding out of ice, and they look like the hull of a ship. I mean, it's crazy. And there's multiple ones. I've got numbers of, of pictures of different instances of, of those. So we basically realize that uh, all of that's great, but in an age of Photoshop and, and being able to manipulate things digitally to the point where you can have a total CGI film, mm -hmm. we realize that you've got to get boots in the ground and you have to find... Uh, organic material that is not organic to the mountain okay. that has to date, you know, somewhere in the 4,000, 4,500 year time range, although it could be much older because we don't know how old the wood was that Noah would have used for the ark. So having said all that, I was not enamored with eyewitness testimony. Okay. Uh, people pass lie detector tests, sure. Uh, people had seen things and yada, all that stuff, but a lie detector nope. test doesn't detect the truth. It just detects whether you think what you're saying is the truth. <laughs> right. Basically what your team is going after is a, a core sample that can be carbon dated, right? You're looking for a core sample that uh, that would indicate material of the art that's biblically, biblically yep. based. So yep. Cyprus, you're looking for Cyprus. Yeah, Cyprus, uh, there's a lot of different um, interpretations of what gopher wood. Some people believe it was a ancient type of plywood where the resin of wood was actually uh, pushed together and, and formed into like a, a bendable plywood, if you will. So there's a lot of different interpretations of what gopher wood could actually mean okay here's where it gets fascinating for me so there's an individual uh his name is not in the film he prefers to be called mr x and we'll get to the finding noah film a little bit later but he has a name and i i could say it on our podcast because it's in publication but there's an individual who has military background and he has access to military grade technology so he's okay. been saying for several decades actually since probably about the mid 90s that uh using this satellite imagery or remote sensory intelligence information using satellites uh, because we can read you know license plates from high up in the sky there's really no way you can't hide anymore i don't right. know if people realize that that's not conspiratorial that's just fact right so he's using this technology and what he's telling us is quite fascinating actually it's very inflammatory because he's saying things like i see a structure buried under the ice on mount ararat it looks like a ship has been dropped from the sky 
there's one main part and then there's a, a spectral trail of other debris that connects to two or three other major portions of debris. It's not visible to the naked eye, although some of it may be protruding towards the Ahura Gorge and may be visible from time to time, you know, basically determining uh, meltback or being determined by meltback. But it's there. I don't know what it is. I don't believe in the story of Noah. I'm an atheist. I'm a scientist. And I'm just telling you, there. it appears as if a ship has been dropped out of the sky. It looks like the hull of a ship. Uh, and you're not going to know what it is until you put boots on the ground and actually excavate ah, this thing. Okay. So that's inflammatory language. Now, that's a scientist using remote sensory intel telling us there's something right at the ice cap. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't believe in the story of Noah. But it's inflammatory enough. And he's got a, a pretty good track record of having helped on other expeditions, not necessarily particular to Ararat, but uh, other archaeologists have used them to locate sure. other treasures. It's the impetus of the assembly. It's, it's yeah. what starts movement. Because it's not a it's not a physical eye it's a technical eyewitness. So okay. it, we're just letting science lead us where wherever the end of the anomaly is. So we sure. know there's an anomaly under the ice. We don't know what it is. So we know we've got to put boots in the ground, and we know we have to excavate. We know we have to drill. We know we have to get core samples, and preferably we would love to get an actual sample, like a physical sample, not a core sample derived from uh, drilling excavations, but actually excavating large amounts of wood that you know would date carbon dating on in that four to four thousand forty five hundred year time span but once we get on the ground and we weren't able to do this in 2009 but in every subsequent year we were adding to that first technical witness with remote sensory intel we were adding to that ground penetrating radar surveys we had done several hundred surveys over the eastern plateau that also indicated there was anomalies underneath the ice cap that we couldn't ascertain what they were until we actually drilled and excavated. So that's a second technical witness. The third technical witness was our drill bits were getting stuck at the same depth, depth that the remote sensor guy was saying there was something and our ground penetrating radar was something. So now we have a trifecta and that's where everything came to an apex. Okay. Uh, actually not in the year that we filmed, which is 2013, but in 2012. And that's a whole other story. But in 2009, we didn't know what we were getting into. Um, we thought we would just excavate a hole and la-di-da, we'd find the ark because Mr. X, as he's called, and in, in finding Noah. You might stub your toe on it. <laughs> yeah, he just said basically it's at these coordinates. Okay. So we went up there with a, uh, a very expensive, uh, not a radar unit, but actually a, a GPR. It actually triangulated with 13 different satellites. It, you wore it like a backpack. So this thing was a pretty, pretty big pretty deal. Yeah, it's not your little Garmin that you would just walk around with. What we didn't realize at the time was that A, it's a demilitarized zone, so you can ask any pilot, as commercial pilots will tell you this as well, that there are certain areas in the world where you almost have to go old school because the coordinates are scrambled. Um, because of the military tension in certain parts of the world, they don't want you to be able to get exact coordinates, and so there's a scrambling effect that goes on. I don't understand the science okay. behind but you're it. On, I mean, you are bordering Turkey, and, and Iran, Iran. And, and, and Armenia. So, Armenia. But on top of this mountain and around the mountain and actually inside the mountain is the PKK group, which is the militarized uh, militant group of Kurdish people who are trying to get back the country they lost in the 20s when they reframed that entire region and the powers of the world that be basically gobbled up real estate after World War One. So Kurdistan was actually a country, a people, yeah. prior to World War One, And when the area was reshuffled after World War One. They lost the country. So they have been trying. Kurds have been persecuted for, for almost 100 ages. years, right? Yeah. 
and they're long, longer than that. Yeah, they're yeah. great people, and they're. I mean, a lot of actually all of our porters were, were Kurds. We worked with a few Turks, but they were mostly uh, Kurdish individuals, and they loved America because we, you know, eliminated their public enemy number one, which was Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So, yeah. um, and the Kurdish people are. Uh, they're just they're great people they're great climbers they're uh, great porters great friends actually wow and so they uh lost their country so now you have a u.s state recognized terrorist group that's active on the mountain and then also at the base of the mountain is a turkish uh tank battalion that uses the mountain as target practice so on many occasions we would see the tracers at night and they were just blowing the mountain to pieces to do their artillery practices so over the course of three and a half decades, there's probably been twenty to twenty-five thousand casualties between the PKK and the Turkish military. Wow! That involves civilian death and military death. So there's a lot of tension in that area, and it was uh, it was pretty aggravated or uh, accelerated in '09. And so, you know, there were some things that were happening on the mountain at that time, which uh, I can tell a story in just a moment. But it was not a a safe place. Um, and so our greatest concern was not just staying alive in the mountain, but also not becoming collateral damage between two warring factions. Yep. So you've got natural issues with the mountain, uh, the altitude, um, extreme swings of temperature, uh, potentially some geopolitical stuff that uh, that could jack up your plans at any given moment. Yeah. And you've also got uh, a team of about anywhere between 10 and 12, right? Yeah. Fluctuates sometimes less, sometimes more, but who's around that? Who who have great brains, but not necessarily the the mountaineering chops of you and your friend. Yeah, okay. Basically, people are like, "What did you do on the mountain?" I, I I kept smart guys alive. Yeah, that's what I did. Okay, so uh, your your job in this entire expedition is to oversee the brains of of the operation and keep them keep just, them alive. You know, I, I basically was shuttling people back and forth because we figured out after year one, um, and it's, and it came to a climax in year two in two thousand ten as the Kurdish porters do not view themselves as guides okay they're there to get your junk from point a to point b uh if you come along with it that's great and you survive that's fine but they're not your guide they're pack mules yep and so it took us a while to figure out that wow they really are here for our stuff and so i was the guy that kind of became the guide if you will i made sure that people got from point a to point b because just getting to the summit was a major achievement of itself yeah but yeah that's what i did so we had uh, geophysicists we had um archaeologists we had geologists um, people with various, you know, disciplines that they were experts in their field with. So there was a convergence of science and the supernatural and story elements that were all converging together. I was less animated by the science of it all, even though that was the bedrock of why I was going. I wasn't going there because of eyewitness testimony. There was some eyewitness testimony that did lead us to believe that something could have been resting on the mountains of Ararat. And I have to add another element to this because... The foundation of this all was not just scientific surveys or scientific eyewitness accounts that drove me to this story. What really allowed me to embrace this as literal history uh, is the fact that Christ, even though he was the master of metaphor, when he spoke in two of the four Gospels of the flood account and the deluge and the story of Noah, he didn't treat it as metaphor. He treated it as actual literal history. So I thought, you know what, for, for my part, I just don't feel like it's a good idea to argue with how Christ handled the story. So I came at it from, yeah, there's tremendous poetic applications throughout mm-hmm. the Ark story. I, I think you'd have to be, you'd have to have minimal self-awareness to not see that. Right. But it is a literal story. And so that was my bedrock. I believe it actually happened because Christ believed it actually happened. So I'm not in a position to really argue with him and I don't want to get into 
what did Jesus actually say or not say in the Gospels. I believe it's an accurate account of what he did say. Yeah. So I started from that point. Interesting. And then added to that the scientific anomalies and then just the idea that, wow, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically say Mount Ararat in the book of Genesis, but it, it uses the plural firm. Mountains. Mountains of, of Ararat. Ararat. And then when you look at all the uh, writers of antiquity, um, most notably Josephus and the people before and after him, they all treated the ark on top of a mountain as kind of, yeah, it's just what people do. They go and they climb at this mountain in a certain part of the world and they chip off pieces of the ship and they use it as a talisman to ward off evil spirits. So it wasn't a big deal for people in that time frame um, during Josephus era before and after uh, to think that people would go on these pilgrimages. Now the problem is they used language, geographic language that is not, it didn't correlate well to what we have in our modern maps. Hold on a second. So Interesting. A there. We, so you've got, I, I don't mean to continue cutting you off, Kevin, because I think what you're saying right now is, is ultimately what I'm going to simplify, but you've got, you've got three truths that are coming from the scientific community, right? You've got, um, you've got satellite imagery. Yeah. You've got radar. Right. And then yeah. you've, and then you've got coring and sampling, right? Yes. So from, those three things, the scientific community is saying there's circumstantial evidence that's not just suggestive, but it's suggestive enough to, to assemble a team and spend multi-millions to, to go pursue this, this anomaly. Yep. That's a uh, well-used word, anomaly. Okay. From the camp of Kevin DeVries, who is an intellectual, but for this particular expedition was, was brought on for his mountaineering chops and is essentially his ability to keep these these scientists uh, alive and well enough to do their job the way that they had set out to do their job. But Kevin's background in this entire thing is, yeah, of course the ark exists. It exists from all of all of scripture that I've spent my life studying, right? Correct. And what you're telling me right now is that there's a biblical account of Josephus referencing regular pilgrimages to this ark. And people were finding it and stripping pieces from it in order to take back to their homes? Yeah. So there's historical accounts of this, too. I mean, you can depart the, the biblical narrative, if you'd like, and you can find other evidence through uh, other writings that, you know, this was just, yeah, it's a story that's been circulated around. And, there, you know, even a guy like Robert Ballard, um, who is the greatest oceanographer of all time, most famous for finding uh, the Titanic or relocating, uh, I wouldn't say found it. He discovered where its final resting place was in the 80s. And then from that point, he discovered the Bismarck and Lusitania and the Yorktown and Kennedy's PT-109 boat. So this guy is a, he's, you know, he, he's the guy. And they did a, a series, a TV series called Back to the Beginnings. Um, I don't know what it was, probably in the early, well, this would have been maybe 2010 or 11-ish, somewhere in there. And he took his submersibles down into the Dead Sea area because he was going on the hypothesis that there must have been a story. Something must have happened because this story of the flood is tattooed on human consciousness. It's in 500 different legends throughout all these indigenous tribes all over the world on every continent except Antarctica. How could this be? You know, It's a staple point of five of the world's largest languages yeah. or religions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're shared by all of them. And so... Um, he went down with his submersibles because he believed that, okay, maybe he went on this scientific hypothesis that there was a massive amount of, of glacial melt during the Ice Age, 
and the Mediterranean Sea uh, rose suddenly to the extent that it actually forced or created the Bosphorus as we know it today that separates Istanbul, Europe from Asia, and it spilled into the Black Sea. And we know that the Black Sea at one time was a freshwater sea because I don't know what the exact depths are, but uh, it's actually fresh water at a certain level, maybe 100 feet and below. Uh, is fresh and then the salinity the salt water actually rises so for someone like him it's like going to the great lakes i mean once you get past the the salt water everything below that is well preserved like it would be in the great lakes without a high salt content so he went down with the submersibles and what did he find he found ancient shorelines which in and of itself is not unusual i mean lakes rise and fall and we, we see that even happen in our great lakes here in the midwest but what he found was that it appeared as if people had left suddenly they had left everything as is and, and fled. So marketplaces were still intact and carts and vestiges of, of human occupation and habitation. And he walked away from that experience, essentially drawing this conclusion. Something happened here. It was, it was cataclysmic. It was sudden. It was almost uh, apocalyptic. And whatever it was, people had to leave suddenly. And that's where his origin the story so he doesn't parallel it with the biblical narrative i thought oh, there's an interesting another piece of science that's verifying that something happened here mm. interesting enough though i mean that there'd be that much uh attempt to justify to prove to take hypothesis and to to add scientific uh exploration to it to the point where we draw truth or fact from and in the, the midst of all of that activity and all of that expenditure and all of that sweat equity and all of all of that study you've got the truth that takes place in your Bible. Yeah. And it, it all points right back to that truth. And then one other layer is this, the field of psychology. So guys like Freud and Jung uh, would believe that it's collective consciousness, that we all have this memory that's embedded in our DNA, and they believe it's emblematic or its point of origin is actually the birth experience, that it's some type of memory, pre-memory experience where we, we are the water is broke, right? And mm -hmm. you're you're brought forth into new life. You come from an aquatic environment and then all of a sudden you become, uh, you enter from aqua to terra firma. And so there's something about that too, but it goes back to what we began with on this podcast was just this whole idea of rebirth. So you, you've got so many things. You have science, you have poetry, you have psychology, spirituality. They're all converging into this one story. It becomes a master, not only a meta narrative, but it becomes a master archetype. I mean, one of the great archetypes of, of literature because it, it encapsulates a lot of what the human experience is about. Mm. We all want a resurrection. Yeah. Interesting. So thanks for, for hanging with us. I think this is, a, this is all an important part of kind of getting us zeroed in on, on one specific aspect of this, this expedition, uh, which Kevin's going to share with us shortly. But I just think it's really important to understand uh, how many different variables go into getting Kevin DeVries on that that mountain? So, Kevin, today you have agreed to share with us part two of this story, which uh, which zeroes in on one particular adventure that's a big part of the larger adventure, shall we say. Talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, it, it was in the second week of your first year. Uh, the expedition team was... was quite new at that point. You were still getting to know each other. Share with us from the starting point of week one, what took place uh, on Mount Ararat? So uh, we have to excavate a hole. Um, and that particular year in 09, there's about four feet of snow above the ice cap, which had never happened in any subsequent year. Uh, every subsequent year, the ice cap was right to the surface. Uh, there was no real snow coverage except for a few inches of stuff that you had to remove. 
So we are excavating the hole. We're getting down to the actual ice. So we've got four foot walls that are surrounding us. Uh, at this point, there's only three of us on the mountain. We're waiting for the rest of the team to arrive. And it's myself, Dr. Randall Price from Liberty University and Hulk Condren, who is a very good friend and also a fellow mountaineer. Okay. And all of a sudden a storm blows in, uh, almost like a lenticular cloud. It looks like a toilet bowl effect. If you've seen pictures of a mountain with the cloud going in a circular motion and all the electrical activity is is connected with that. So we are now... How uh, high are you guys at this point? You're well, way, at, well above tree line. Yeah, we're at 16,800 some odd feet. Oh, so wow. we're actually okay. just a little bit below the actual summit of Ararat on the Eastern Plateau. So we're in that 16,700, 800 range. And a storm blows in and the electrical activity is such that it feels like you're sticking your head into a beehive nest. Oh, weird. Everything is crackling. And this standing up. Oh, yeah. Head. I mean, this mountain is notorious for electrical storms. The worst electrical storms I face on any mountain in the world really is Mount Ararat. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it's a standalone mountain. It's freestanding. It's that part of a range. It's a dormant volcano. Just a big lightning rod. Yeah, exactly. And so we're surrounded by aluminum. We've got shovels in our hands, aluminum shovels. We have aluminum ice axes. We have oh, man. crampons that we're wearing. So we became totally disoriented. It came in really quick. Our tents were maybe 100, 200 yards away. We were trying to make our way towards them, and then the whiteout came, and we were just huddled together. Oh, my word. And I, one of the scariest moments I've spent on a mountain because you can hear the crackling charge in the air, and we just prayed. We just said, God, open up a window for us to see our tents, and we did this for probably about 40, 45 minutes. Were these two other guys uh, believers? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, great guys. And so, they, you know, we were all just praying in earnest. God, help us. You know, yeah, you're, is, scared. Uh, you're scared. To yeah, death. I mean, we're... we're we're vulnerable, man. I mean, we're exposed. There's no place to go. We're like a herd of dairy cows out in the field. And, oh, and the, you know, we're just, we're a major heat source. So um, sure enough, we had prayed and uh, I, I, just a brief window, the clouds dissipated enough, just enough for us to see our yellow tents. And we made a beeline and not like that would have saved us, but it was at least best to be out of the elements. And so we went in the tents, the storm blew over, and then the rest of the team arrived uh, later that day. And then the night came, um, which was really the, one of the first nights that our whole team was together on the mountain. And did you know these guys? Had you met prior? Yeah, we had met at base camp, and so, but not before the expedition. I didn't okay. know anybody. Okay. Uh, but you get pretty close when you're in life and death situations with with people. Yeah, you do. Where was uh, where was base camp? How far? Well, uh, um, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Base camp is actually Camp Murat, and that's at about five and a half, six thousand feet, and that actually rests a little bit above the the city of Doggy Bizet, or as we affectionately call it, Doggy Biscuit. <laughs> um, and that you actually have to go from Camp Murat down into the city, okay. through the city, and then you approach Mount Ararat. Okay, um, but that's where you, originally everybody came together, shook hands, yep. nice to meet you, and just situated our gear, and yep. you know there's a restaurant there, and and squat toilets, and all that stuff. Kind of so, go through all your initial. Yeah. Okay. Then you have Camp One at about maybe ten and a half, eleven thousand feet on the actual mountain itself. Camp Two, or I guess you could consider it base camp. It's kind of the major spot where everybody makes their summit bids. The tourists that are there okay. is at forty-two hundred meters. So you're about fourteen thousand two hundred feet, uh, okay. and then you enter into a rock uh, area, and then actually you get on the glacier at probably about fifteen, eh, fifteen and a quarter, fifteen and a half thousand feet, and then you summit at about sixteen eight. Okay, so there were a number of steps that had already been completed yep. to get you to this point where you you're two hundred yards from your excavation site with your tents. Yeah, okay. at sixteen and a thousand eight hundred feet on the eastern plateau. So we are essentially on top of the mountain, but we're away from the true summit, separated oh. by you know a. 
uh, a large uh, plane. So anyway, we're just exposed. So the group comes in at night and then a storm just keeps building and building. And the winds are increasing to the extent where I'm in a $600 North Face VE-25 tent, which is a staple of expeditions around the world. You can look at Everest Base Camp pictures or anything polar. It's their best tent, and it's it's actually tested behind jet turbines and wind tunnels, so we know it can handle 100-mile-an-hour winds. And I'm watching, Holt, Conjure, and I are in the same tent. We're watching our tent poles snap like twigs. Oh, my word. And it's almost like someone's just sucking all the air out of our tent because it's collapsing on us. So we are literally holding our tent up. I've got it bomb-proofed as best I can. We have a storm fly. We have a vestibule, but I have packed snow all the way around it, so nothing's going to get underneath us. So we're... You know, we're, we're pretty, pretty low profile. Anyway, the storm continues to build. The winds are building. The thunder, light lane, the, the supercharged atmosphere. Holt and I are looking at each other like, how in the world did we end up in this story? This is insane. I know there's guys outside our tent that are in two season tents that they're going to be lucky to make it through the night. Uh, as the storm progresses and increases in intensity, I hear our Kurdish porters yelling in Kurdish uh, they're just doing the whole thing and yelling at each other, which is not highly unusual. They, they don't really talk. It seems like they're yelling a lot. <laughs> it's just the way they talk. They yell. And uh, something's going on. I come to find out their tent was ripped in two. So they're now totally exposed to the environment. On their way to our tent, because they know Holt and I are in here and we have a good tent, they uh, stumble across our expedition leader, uh, Dick Bright, who also brought up a two-season tent and is ripped in half and he's in a fetal position is mostly unconscious he's mumbling out a few words but he's not all there so they come into our tent they unzip the vestibule then they poke their head into our our actual tent and they go uh, richard richard his name is dick bright or richard bright and they do the universal symbol of death you know, the slit across the throat. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Our expedition leader is dead. We're going to be on CNN. We'll never be on the mountain again. Everything, everything that all these guys have worked towards is done. So I'm thinking, okay, we got a dead man on the mountain. We're going to have to put him in a sleeping bag, drag him off and do what they you know typically do and get this guy off. So Holt and I look at each other and we're like, one of us has to stay in this tent or it's going to blow off the mountain. And they were calling my name anyway. Kevin is actually very similar to a lot of their cities there. There's a lot of Vaughn and Yerevan. And so Kevon is not a hard word to say. Kevon, Kevon. So they start yelling my name. Kevon, Kevon. So I get out. And uh, lo and behold, Dick is there. He's got his jeans on, his leather jacket, you know. Oh, my word. Old school. He's just, he's, I love him to death. He's just, he's like a, almost like a fatherly type figure in my life. Uh, very uh, strong man, very determined man, and he's been he's made it a thirty year quest to find Noah's Ark. So he was bequeathed this by the widow of James Irwin at James Irwin's funeral, which is a whole other story in and of itself. He was oh the astronaut, word. one of the twelve Apollo astronauts that landed on the moon, that actually sent spent uh, several years on air at in the eighties. He went on six different expeditions, almost lost his life there on a couple of occasions. So he's in this for the long haul, and I'm looking at his face, and his face is like violet purple. And I'm thinking, okay, he's just, he's, he's dead. He's had a heart attack. Something's going on here. And um, it was pretty desperate. Uh, he was still somewhat lucid, although he was mostly unconscious. Um, and so we dragged him and uh, carried him into uh, the Kurds, two Kurds and I, into another gentleman's tent that had a, a uh, North Face tent. And then the Kurds went into our Black Diamond 
gear tent. So they had a place to stay for the night. So everybody was in a four season tent with the exception of one individual. He was actually from Hawaii. And when I went up to his tent, it looked like a, a human sarcophagus. It looked like King Tut's tomb because you could see the total contour of his body. It's like someone had just cryovac sucked all the oxygen and ziplocked him in a piece of plastic because you could see his whole body contour. Vacuum packed in there. Yeah. And I said, Robert, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, Whoa. yeah, I'll, I'll make it through. I says, what do you, I says, dude, can you breathe? He's like, yeah, I've got a, my, my, uh, he had his, I don't want to block the, the podcast, but he had his hands over his face. So he created an air pocket. So I thought, oh, you know what? Goodness. It's working for him. It looks like his tent's going to make it through. He's talking. Yeah, he's, he's fine. And so I thought, you know, what? we're, we're just going to stick with what we have because our, our other tents are already maxed out. So it he is. survived the night. Uh, another guy's tent got, so we had probably half of our tents were ripped up. And we all ended up in, in North Face tents or similar tents for the rest of the night. Yeah. Come the next morning, we wake up. I've got to catch a, a plane. Um, you know, I was there to help get them started. And we thought that this thing would have been done and sealed up by this point. Well, the hole that we had dug was all covered up, obviously, that morning. Uh, in subsequent years, I was able to convince the team to buy a uh, large mountain hardware tent that was like six grand. But it was... Uh, large enough you could probably sleep 25 guys and it was a huge base camp operation type of thing but it was floorless so we actually used that to cover the hole i had three exit entry points ventilation tubes so we could actually push up all the the gas fumes from the chainsaws and push it up and out of the hole because we excavated holes and that's what you were using yeah okay yeah um in subsequent years not this year uh we didn't we just didn't things were not well thought through we thought we could just go up and chisel this thing in and it's like no and the chainsaws were there but it became inoperable through the storm or were lost i'm not sure how that all played out but okay. the, the hole was not properly dug that year i can tell you that yeah in subsequent years it was done and we've got that all on video where we excavated down to almost 40 feet on one occasion an eight by eight hole which is herculean because it's glacier ice so it's like concrete yeah so i'm getting off the mountain and here's where it gets really funky really quick i'm the only one that's leaving alone which is Mistake number one, you should always be in groups of two because in 2010, we had a Scottish gentleman that came that was researching the Chinese site that we had mentioned earlier and he disappeared, never found again, was alone, came in October. Two things happened. Either he fell into a crevasse or he was a victim of foul play. His gear showed up like a year or two later. Uh, His brother's in the film finding Noah. His mom for years kept calling his cell phone hoping he'd pick up. Wow. So just, just that horrible... Uh, you don't have a body, you don't have a death certificate, you wonder if he's being held captive. It's similar to what you hear of these agonizing parents, the agony that you know their soldier's son disappeared and they yeah. have no verified evidence. The agony of a, of a perpetual question mark. Yeah, the porch light is always on, there's no closure, the cell phone keeps ringing, the porch light is on, the hope continues, and so yeah. hope can never bury, grief can never bury hope, so you can't move on. Right. So you're constantly in this limbo. So anyway, I knew, okay, that's mistake number one. I'm climbing off the mountain. I, I hardly had any sleep. I feel lucky to be alive. The mountain literally blew us off the mountain. The guys subsequently in the next few days peeled themselves off the mountain and realized they had to make a second attempt, which they did. And they tried to build a semi-permanent structure on top of the mountain to be able to um, work up there for longer periods. And that eventually didn't work out either. So 2009 was a wash. We learned a lot. And then we returned in subsequent years. But I'm coming off the mountain and I'm the only Western guy there. And I end up in a in a van, I was just sitting in a van waiting for everybody else to catch up. There was a large group of Persian Iranian climbers that were climbing as a part of an Iran mountaineering group. Because there's there are also other expeditions going on. Oh yeah, for, people for from all over. Not so much Western countries or Western European, but Eastern European and Middle Eastern. Oh wow! So Iran has got several mountains. They have a, a very active mountaineering club. 
So they're on the mountain at the same time. I got ahead of them and reached the van pickup point at, I don't know what it was, 10,000 or 9,500 feet. I'm waiting in the van. Slowly, the large group of Iranians come trickling in. And I have a lot of Persian friends. I lived for 12 years in Detroit area, not too far from Dearborn. And so every okay. every guy in Iran's got an uncle that owns a gas station in Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah. It works for Ford Motor Company. Yeah. There, there's a, a symbiotic relationship there. So That's I'm real. sitting in the van, and our driver, our Kurdish driver, just says, Hey, look, American, American. I was like, gosh darn it. I really wish, because I had actually... Um, Something was going on in the mountain. I didn't know what it was at the time, but there was an incident where uh, some of our workers were arrested. And as the story is told, uh, the Kurds were eventually let go, but the Turkish gentleman was uh, shot and killed. So it had a bad ending for one individual. So this the, the mountain was in a state of unrest. So I'm sitting in the van. I don't realize what beehive I'm walking into, another electrical storm of sorts, although it's more political than anything else. And he says, American. And so all these uh, Persian guys start surrounding the truck. And I think I'm going to be lynch mobbed. Oh, my. Because word. this was during or shortly, you know, after the Gulf War. And uh, there was some angst there. You know, the Iran's, Iranians thought we were going to bomb them into oblivion. And we probably felt the same from them. So a lot of tension there. And so they were like, America, America, George Bush, devil, kill, kill, kill. And they got that glazed look in their eyes. And I was like, okay, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. Yeah, you just so, said it. You walked into it. Oh, man. I, and so I, I looked at my driver. I was like, thanks a lot. You know, I usually would tell people I was Canadian because everybody loves Canadians. Right. right. And I That's can, an easy play. Hey, Hoser, you know, hey, let's climb the mountain. Hey, let's right. play some hockey. I'm sorry. You know, right. Just do the whole Canadian thing, and I didn't. I didn't have enough chance because he already let the cat out of the bag. So I'm thinking, oh crap! So what am I going to do now? So I immediately went diplomatic. I went to the fact that I was a climber, and they were climbers. Talked about the seven summits, and then talked about soccer. Talked about Dearborn, Michigan, Ford Motor Company, blah 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I'm their best friend. Oh wow! So and I needed them in the end because the way the story unfolded is I'm coming off the mountain. uh, It's now dusk. The lights are not on on the van inside or exterior and i'm thinking something weird's going on here and then they i hear the whisperings of the uh persians in the group say between their own language words like pkk police it was all hushed it was something's going on i'm thinking huh what's going on i think that they understand something weird is going on because usually you go down the mountain with your lights on so we get maybe a third of the way down and then there's three vans the drivers all pull over they're talking to each other and my driver is talking to our kurdish partner who incidentally is now dead uh, under very dubious circumstances. That's a whole other story in and of itself. But he's on the other end of the phone, and he's shouting out into the phone, into my ear, because the driver handed me the phone. He says, get out now. Go and ditch. I find you tomorrow. And I was like, okay, I just had a really rough day. This is like a Jack Bauer 24-hour thing here. There's every second, every hour is counted. I feel like every hour was like a week. I says, I'm really tired. I think what you're telling me to, say, to do is to get out of the vehicle and hide in a ditch somewhere. Yes, yes, go now. You get your, your stuff, we find you. I was like, how do you, how are you gonna find me? Where do you want me to go? <laughs> I'm just thinking, how did I end up in this story? So oh my word. they take me out and it's mostly all Persians. There was a couple of, <coughs> excuse me, Eastern European individuals. They pull me out of the vehicle. They start feeding me candy and cupcakes and sweet stuff. I'm thinking, what am I? It's like being fattened before the slaughter, you know? And they're patting me on the back. Oh, sorry. This is very, this is not normal, not normal, not normal. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then they take my luggage out and um, they carry it. And then they show me a place uh, like 30, 300 feet down into a ravine where there's a bunch of rocks and stuff. And so they say, you go there, you hide, hide. 
Nobody find. We go. We find you tomorrow. We know. They're just packing you full of calories. Yeah, they're just and uh, and I'm thinking. So I'm settled behind a rock. I've got all my luggage and stuff there. I'm thinking, man, this is a strange, strange tale that I followed into. And here's where it gets crazy. I felt like I was in Mordor. And remember uh, in Mordor, Frodo and Samwise are looking up in the sky, and the smoke and the mist and the ugliness of Mordor disappears, and it's all emblematic of Tolkien's experience on in World War One. I'm sure on the uh, the front, you know, where at times when the artillery fog and smoke would dissipate and he could see a singular star and you could feel like, man, there's something pure, there's something honorable, there's something that evil can't touch, like a star suspended in the universe. And I remember looking up in the sky, the stars were out, there wasn't a storm. And I don't know, it was weird. It's like this great sense of hope came inside of me. And I felt like, you know, at least I'm not going to be blown off the mountain tonight. The weather's going to be good. I can survive at this lower altitude without all my you know, tent gear and everything. I can just sleep behind a rock. And so I actually had a sense of peace about me. But and another part of me was, it's like, how in the world did I end up in this story? I mean, I'm hiding in a ditch because stuff's going on in the mountain and they don't want me to get killed. And, my Persian cabbies just fed me cupcakes. And yeah, I mean, what's what's going on here? So Yeah, this is, this is insane. I'm sitting in the ditch for, I don't know how much time. It might have been 10 or 15 minutes, not too long. And this guy comes running toward me with his headlamp on saying my, uh, he's like talking. And I'm thinking the PKK saw this whole thing. They saw me getting dropped off. They saw me being walked into the ditch. They know exactly where I am. They know I'm hiding behind this rock because they're making a straight beeline right towards me. I says, I have two options here. I can either wait till they get close and get into some kind of wrestling match. I don't know if his army's going to shoot me in the head. I mean, what is he going to do? So, so fight or flight is... Yeah, is I'm like, I have two options here. I mean, what am I going to do? I have no weaponry on me. Yep. I don't even have time enough to get my ice axe out. Like, that's going to really do a whole lot of good. But I just said, you know what? I'm just going to... Wait to see how it plays out. I'm just going to pop up and whatever happens, happens. So I pop up behind the rock. I just clearly show I have nothing in my hands. The headlight from his uh, headlamp is, is just right in my face. And it's the driver of the van. He's like, it's okay. You come now. We go back. I was like, what? He's just get your stuff. We go back. We go back. So I get my junk. And somehow one of the vans left empty. I wonder if they were kind of like a target practice. They went through this area where there was conflict in the mountain. And I wonder if it went it went in deadheaded, if you will. Uh, so with all they, the they lights were on. up a dummy van. Yeah, just the music blaring. And then it went through and that was okay. And now, so now we've got an issue where 15 people that would have been in that van are now collecting with the 15 people that are already in this van. So we've got like, literally, I counted like 30 Iranians in a 15 passenger van. I'm six foot three something. They put me in that little runway, you know, where the actual side door kind of comes in and out. There's always a little runway there, a step. Yeah. I'm crammed in there with like three or four other people. I'm in a fetal position. And I think part of the logic was 30 Iranians, one American, music blaring, lights on. We're going to, it'll be okay. Nobody's going to target this guy. He's going to be part of the collective whole. And so that's exactly what they did. They just put the music blaring on. They kept all the lights on and uh, everybody's singing Iranian songs. And so... It was just a really unnerving thing to be at one point left in a ditch for the night, going to be picked up, I guess, the next day. I don't know where and when. I don't even know what I should do to now I'm back in the van and we got dropped off at base camp, which would be Camp Murad, you know, like at one or two in the morning. And the Kurds are very apologetic there. And then they explain the situation that there was an incident on the mountain and some of our porters were uh, in a conflict with the Turkish army and the Kurds were eventually released but the uh, Turkish um, actually it was with the PKK so the Kurds were released but the PKK had killed the Turk I want to make sure I get that story correct at least the way it was told to us 
I don't have any way of verifying that actual story other than through our Turkish or through our Kurdish partners. Mm. But it, it's safe to say that we were entering into a, a point of tension there in the mountain. And they were very, very concerned that I was going to end up being collateral damage, which wow. would have been bad business for everybody. So let me just get this straight. You were with uh, Kurdish and PKK folks? Uh, well, no. Um, although <laughs> some of our porters might have been PKK, just unbeknownst to you. Yeah, it's like Vietnam. Our Vietnam vet, he's right. like, this is just like Vietnam all over again. It's they're rice farmers by day, Vietcom by, by night. night. Yeah, right. they change outfits. Right. But you're with folks who are Kurdish, and basically you're you're scanning the mountain for any sort of of defensive activity from the Kurdish. Or, I'm sorry, from the... Um, well, the Turks are there. The Turkish. And the PKK are there, and they're the ones that are fighting each other. Looking for retribution, though, Yeah, effectively, right? Yeah, they're just... They're uh, trying they're, not to get caught up in the Exactly. Crossfire. Something is happening, and, and we don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so nobody's targeting me, per se. They just want to make sure that I get off the mountain safely, because when an American dies on foreign soil, it's news. It's always news. It's a big deal, especially Liberty University is involved, biggest evangelical college in the world. You know, that it's just... It's going to be a big story. So that's that's uh, the second uh, CNN episode that you saw flash before your eyes in 12 hours, <laughs> yeah. right? I just thought this thing is over with. But I came off the mountain that year just thinking, first of all, I got arc fever because we didn't solve anything. So I you knew just that, got a, a lick. Yeah, you I just, just got, got a taste. lick. And then the next year, you know, we did some more investigating, but we actually went to two different sites the next year. So our party was split from the get-go. And that's a whole other story we can tell. Yeah, I have a feeling, Kevin, that you and I are going to have to do a couple more episodes in order to capture the whole story. Every year can stand on its own merit. There was uh, stories that centered around that. But it's the whole idea that we're all on a quest. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 talks about how God's glory is the search, or rather the secret, and the search is the glory of man or the glory of kings, depending on what translation you read. And so I felt like God put a secret in front of me. And like one of the things that I continually say in all of my talks is this whole idea that the greatest discoveries in life are made while you're looking for something else. So it's the crumbs along the trail that are actually the true discovery. It's the journey that becomes a destination of itself. Those are the gems, right? Yeah. And this was just a start. Unbelievable. So what actually transpired? Did you make your, your, I mean, you, you got, Got to the airport yeah. okay and flew home? Yeah, I was just kind of, you know, startled by the whole thing. And uh, everybody else that came off the mountain had no no issues. You know, again, I was just in a, in a weird place at a weird time and I came alone. So, wow. yeah, I came back from that and I was like, okay, what's going on here? And it took me several years to figure out what the real story was. And that happened uh, in conjunction with the film coming into play in 2015 uh, in theaters nationwide. And that's basically the core of my story, which is a whole other message. But 2009 was was the genesis of, of a five-year odyssey that, uh, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis talked about, that the letters are so large in our lives that you can't see them on the ground. You've got to get into some transcendent experience on top of a mountain or, or preferably even higher, something even more cosmic than that to be able to see the letters of your life, which are so large, they can only be viewed from another dimension. And so I felt like I was stepping into my story. I was stepping into a letter or into a chapter, and it was so large uh, that I, I had no ability to interpret that. And that's a that's a very dis, a point of despair. And it, it's kind of like a Henry David Thoreau moment where you know the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And so I was desperately searching for the interpretive tools to my own story I had the ability to interpret a lot of other people's story, but just like Joseph, who had a, an incredible gift, he couldn't interpret his own story until it actually happened. Uh, wow. Genesis 45. And so I felt like 
I was stepping into something. I didn't know what it was, but it was bigger than me. And uh, it had a lot to do with symbols and metaphors and archetypes and poetic imagery and literalism, everything all at once. And I felt like because of the way my brain works, God was going to speak to me through the physicality of a mountain and through its uh, poetic imagery to connect me with the story that uh, became my message. Wow. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. Adventure Deficit's mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire you through these stories and the life lessons they hold. We can't wait to see you get out there in pursuit of your own adventures and combat the deficit. We need your help in achieving this, and there's several ways you can get involved. First, if you're listening to this, you probably already know we're on iTunes under Adventure Deficit, but be sure to click subscribe. This way, our new episodes will automatically appear in your download queue and we'll know how many of you we're reaching. We'd love to see your feedback on there too, so feel free to post a note and let us know how we're doing. Our main website, www.adventuredeficit.com, which serves as a base camp for all of our content, is where we'll post notes from each episode, including timestamps from the highlights and direct links to any gear or information that you might want to revisit. There are gear reviews and short stories from other exciting adventures not featured on the podcast. Under support, you can either buy stuff or donate to the show. A special thanks to those of you who have already bought t-shirts or donated to us directly. This revenue enables us to continue producing content, so think about helping us in that way too, if you can. Finally, you can connect with us on social media. Our Facebook page is at the Adventure Deficit. Give us a follow, or we're on Instagram too, under Adventure Deficit. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. To stick with your central story between uh, your your year one portion of the expedition, your run-in with potentially the Turkish army while you're with Kurdish, potentially PKK, and just kind of getting tangled up in a in really an unforgettable situation where at one point you're at 18,000 feet under the impression that your trip leader is a goner, a man who you love and respect. You're low on sleep, you're solo, and uh, you get wrapped up in potentially some sort of tumultuous, conflictive crossing point between the Kurds and the Turks. Talk a little bit about some of the lessons that might have come out of that and, uh, and how those lessons could potentially apply to, uh, to the AD audience. Yeah, you know, I think in Western culture, we don't have a lot of respect for the journey. We have destination disease. We're about checking boxes and reaching our goals. And I think the Eastern mindset, uh, Eastern hemisphere, um, understands or values the, the journey much more. And so if I learned anything in that year, even though I couldn't get my mind wrapped around it, it's that I was on a journey. And it would probably take a little bit longer than what I thought. And it was probably going to have a lot of rabbit trails that I wouldn't have anticipated. But that was one uh, takeaway that I had was respect the journey, trust the process, and 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 just be liminal be in this spatial element kind of like be a satellite just taking a lot of information be a remote sensor unit yourself if you will in your own soul taking a vast amount of data uh ask the holy spirit and and god and jesus christ the holy trinity to help you interpret this data and to help you not miss the symbols so alexander solstenitian if i'm saying his last name correctly uh said something along these lines and I, it's his language is not very accessible so i'm going to 
um, basically contemporize it, but he said something to the extent that a man's life, and I'm using that in a broad term, humankind, his life is a series of uh, mysteries or encryptions or algorithms. And he said this after spending 10 years in the Siberian Gulag, so which was a human meat grinding machine. He was a Soviet dissident. He said some things against uh, communist Stalin, yes. Russia, and Red so, Russia. Yeah, and so he basically was, you know, put in the human meat grinding machine of the Siberian Gulag and survived that and saw the desperation of men and saw men just give up and live without hope and saw men who didn't feel like they could ever exit out of this torture chamber, and he survived that and and essentially said that the almost echoing throw, you know, in many ways, but he felt like a man's life is a series of encryptions, enigmas, algorithms, anomalies, if you will, and that if he can't rightly interpret those symbols or those images or metaphors, he despairs because he feels like his life is meaningless. And so I think a lot of people feel that way. They, they feel like their life is this big giant computer and the algorithms just are not matching up, you know, the, the machinations of, of their own universe or their own human experience is just not lining up and it feels like a mystery it almost feels braille like to them where they're they're touching it but they can't rightly interpret it the stars are not aligning they're collecting a lot of pixels they're collecting a lot of uh, data or um, pieces of information but in the collection of it they still are not connecting it still feels like everything is a disconnect like parts of their story are not connecting with the the parts of a larger story mm. so if I learned anything that first year it, that first year was about collecting dots it was not about connecting dots mm. and I think people have to be very comfortable with that that goes again with respecting the journey rather having than having destination disease so I learned in that year that that year was meant to be a collection not a connection of dots and to be okay with that and to walk in the mystery of that and be okay with that mystery because that mystery breeds the divine romance and without that mystery, it, it becomes like this logical, this world of logic that's dry and devoid of any human emotion or anything that has any depth or richness or texture to it. So I was slowly entering into the mystery. I wanted answers, but God was putting this secret in front of me. And through that search, the ennoblement process began because a man becomes a king or a woman becomes a queen on the journey by respecting the journey. And then when they enter into the full weight of their own glory, if you will. And when I say that word glory, I mean splendor, the image of Christ that resides in them. The character is there to be able to support that. And so they can actually live a life that's transcendent of themselves and they can move beyond success, which we're so enamored with and we can get into significance. So those are the things that were ruminating, looking back in retrospect, that were probably going on in my mind in 09 was, okay, this is going to be about collecting dots, not necessarily connecting. This is going to be about respecting the journey because the journey is the destination and it's about entering mystery rather than uh, getting answers wow. and being okay with that. That's some really, I mean, you are a philosopher. You do a lot of thinking about thinking, but what a beautiful way to put words to something that I think a lot of us are on a, on a core level aware of, but haven't spent much time dissecting. And I think partially, just speaking from my own journey, um, I do a lot of thinking, but uh, I would say to put those type of words to that thought process requires a, a new gear, a, a whole new level. And that's just a, a wonderful way to put it. I haven't heard it spoken that way, but um, the way I hear it in layman's terms is pay attention to the signs. There you go. And hang in there. Yeah. And the signs are everywhere, yeah. but we're um, suffering gives sight. So uh, there's layers of suffering to the story, which actually is emblematic of mountaineering as a sport. It's a long lesson in suffering 
punctuated by transcendent moments of pure bliss. Mm. So it, it describes the ascent and then the summit experience is absolutely transcendent. It's unbelievable to experience the sun rising above the clouds while your feet are on the ground. Mm. And that's usually an airplane view. <laughs> so there's something very transcendent about that moment. But to get to that point, there's a tremendous amount of suffering. So mm. I, you know, if someone's listening to this podcast and you're going through various forms of suffering, don't run from that suffering. Don't despise it. Just like uh, I would ask you not to despise humble beginnings, but uh, recognize that that gift of suffering, first of all, it's never just for yourself. You always suffer for something larger than yourself. It becomes a story for other people to get enmeshed in and to join with you and to realize their own suffering, but also realize that suffering gives sight. And at the end of the day, when suffering has run its course and it never fully ends until we get to the other side, but when these highly... Um, compressed seasons of suffering that we go through when you come out the other end you'll be able to see in a way that uh, you wouldn't be able to see before and that to me is key is you have to have sight in this life you have to have the ability to see beyond the bend and and be able to enter into another spiritual dimension where you're able to see the signs and you're able to live in the present and you're able to rightly interpret what's happening in your life and when you can do that you can pretty much live through any season because you you've you've got the ability to see with the eyes of your heart what the apostle paul talked about you're looking through the eyes of your truest essence your the truest part of you the eternal part of you which ecclesiastes talks about that eternity resides in the human heart the egyptians figured that out when they went through the embalming process they would always throw the brain away and they'd keep the heart i think they even understood that the afterlife the heart is is preeminent it's the the captain of the ship if you will wow and then when your eyes are opened, then, wow, it's like you get to see things differently. You, your windshield is clean, so you're not looking at your own life through your own shame. You can see other people's glory because you're not looking through your own darkness. So we always see people as we first see ourselves. Mm. Then it gets exciting because now you're able to pull out the glory in other people's lives and speak to that and highlight that because you're not looking through your own shame anymore. Yeah, which is a perfect transition into some of the stuff that you're up to nowadays. So fast forward eight years, get us off of Mount Ararat and kind of into your life now. Kevin founded a ministry. It's called Grace Explorations. And uh, he's got got a part of that called Base Camp. And I think it's uh, it's fitting to talk about Base Camp here where some of our audience might be tapping into what Kevin's trying to get at here. Yeah. So Grace Explorations, two of my favorite words mashed together. I love grace. It's an anomaly. Um, It's unlike anything else that the world has ever seen. Every world religion has a construct for justice, which is getting what you deserve. Every world religion or most world religions have some contrast for mercy, which is a withholding of what you deserve, which basically makes us beggars. So justice makes us into rebels or the law makes us into rebels and mercy makes us into uh, beggars. But grace makes us beautiful because it's something that lives beyond us. It's getting something really, really good that you'll never, ever deserve. So Mm -hmm. it actually humbles you because in order to receive it, you have to let go of your ego, decentralize it or actually deconstruct it because it's a gift that you'll never deserve. There's nothing you can do to receive that. But it's the thing that changes the world. So I took that word, which I fall in love with, and is a key central figure in a book series that I wrote that needs to get cleaned up and edited because she actually becomes personified like Wisdom did in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. And uh, I love that word. I love explorations. I like the whole idea that the human heart is made to explore, that we all are astronauts of awe, and we all have this craving inside of us to get beyond the, the veneer of 
the time-space continuum and experience something much larger and much more transcendent. So I put those two words together. And then the core of what we do here in West Michigan is base camp. And base camp is a place where you can heal. Mm. It's a place where stories are told. So when you climb Mount Everest, which I hope to do someday, when you get up to 24,500 feet, the Russians figured out several decades ago that, yeah, you can keep pushing the climber up higher and higher, but whatever is going on that's not right at 24,500 feet is not going to get any better if you go higher. There's not enough oxygen to heal a paper cut. There's not enough oxygen to heal any cerebral or pulmonary edema issues. So if your brain is swelling or if there's fluid in your lungs or if you've got anything going on and you have no appetite to begin with, it's not going to get any better. So the whole idea is we're climbers, we're not criminals, we're patients, we're not prisoners. We need to take people down, which is what they do in Everest. They'll get you up to 24,500 feet. It's taking you a month, month and a half to get to that level. You're now at the threshold where you can't acclimate any further you can't get any more oxygen in your bloodstream naturally than you already have so you're fully acclimated you spend the night sleeping with oxygen then you climb all the way down through the kumbu icefall which is its own labyrinth of horror and then you go all the way down to twelve and a half thousand feet and you gorge yourself you get your appetite back it's a sensory overload you're hearing the birds sing you're hearing the trickling of water the bubbling brook and all of a sudden life is in full color again rather than the bleak black and white on top of the mountain and, and you do that primarily for this purpose nothing heals in thin air nothing. So a lot of people want to keep redlining. They want to keep getting up to the mountaintop. They want to go from success to success to success. But oftentimes the way up is down. The way in is actually out. So John Muir always talked about that. He would say, I went out for a hike or a walk and I found that going out, I actually went in. So it's this whole metaphysical idea that you have to descend in order to ascend. And I misinterpreted my own life, my own downward descent which was very dramatic and i went all the way to the bottom i hope the bottom <laughs> um and and i think what god was trying to say to me is you got your metaphors wrong you feel like you're a criminal you feel like you're being punished this is punitive and certainly there were some disciplinary actions that were taking place because as a good father to a son there's discipline there or a coach to a athlete yeah um, all those metaphors apply but at the primary core of it it's really about a good surgeon who has an evil blade in his hand and it's painful but you're hurting to heal. He's actually hurting you to heal you, and you can't heal if you can't feel. And so I felt like he was saying, you're a patient, I'm healing you, and to do that, I have to take you down. I've got to take you down further than your ego is comfortable with, and we've got to go baseline in this thing, and you've got to lose a whole bunch of stuff because you're attached to too many things. And so healing happens at base camp. So what we do at base camp is we build a community. We're not, uh, we don't uh, sermonize because sermons will tell, and there's a place for that. We uh, tell stories because stories touch, and stories are the closest and shortest distance between the human heart and truth is through the medium of story. And so we have an uh, individual that comes in that has a dramatic narrative arc. I want somebody, I don't want someone that's just always been really good at being really good, and there's nothing wrong with that. That in itself was an incredible testimony, and there's biblical characters like Daniel that live that. Right. Um, and there's a place for that. Base camp is probably not the best platform for that. I want a guy that is... You're looking for David. I want, a, I want you to fail spectacularly. Yeah. I mean, just fall flat on your face, beg for mercy, and then you know descend into grace. Whether it was your mistake or somebody else's, I don't really care. It's not important. I just want you to teach us what you've learned after you got back up again and started swinging again. Awesome. How do we find you? Well, base camp uh, happens as the second Sunday night of every month at Founders Brewery. Um, oh, wow, really? So, so you guys go go get a couple of beers? Yeah, you know, we brew the authentic life. We sober men with the supernatural. You know, we're the well at world's end that in the end makes all men well. So we, we basically 
we disallow God to incarnate himself in the least likely of places. If he did it in a barn and on a cross, he can certainly do it in a brewery. So that happens to work for us for now. But you can find us at graceexplorations.com, uh, which is plural, graceexplorations.com. Base camp is on there usually about two weeks before each and every event, which in this case would be December 10th coming up here in 2018, 2017, sorry. Uh, they can register there. Uh, we also have trips to Israel. That's a whole other issue uh, and other exciting adventure that we go on. So we take men and now women and couples to Israel and we do retreats there. Wow. So they become part of God's story during the day and then they get to tell their story at night and at that convergent point of the epic story and their own personal stories, they're able to interpret their own story and they come back with a new name and they walk with a limp and and they're, they live a transcendent life because they meet God on the mountaintop. It's a wow. beautiful transcendent thing. I do speaking as well, so a lot of people have me come and speak. So there's a lot of different things that are spinning within the galaxy of grace explorations. Okay. The whole idea is to help or to guide, if you will, the wandering and wounded to find home and healing in Christ. Okay. So if you're in the uh, if you're in the state of Michigan, moreover, if you're close to Grand Rapids, come check out Base Camp. Uh, join Kevin twice. It's twice a month, right? Uh, just once a month. Sec- okay. Second Sunday night of every month. Second Sunday night of every month. Uh, go to graceexplorations.com for more information, uh, where he's also got uh, some more about other trips and uh, hopefully maybe some of your plans for 2018 and years to come. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. A um, couple of quick questions and then we can, uh, we can get out of here. Uh, Kevin, what kind of books are you reading? Um, good question. I can't remember the name of it, but it's uh, Pirate Samson Society. If you're not familiar with, um, it's another men's movement that's kind of intriguing to me. And I'm going to butcher the title, but it's some hodgepodge of Samson, Pirate, something. Or <laughs> I wish I could draw Fair it up. Enough. You caught me off guard, but Fair uh, it's another men's movement that is intriguing to me. And they do something very similar if, to what we're doing. Okay. But if I went to Google Samson Society, I could probably get yeah get in the right, right yeah. direction, find a book. Okay. Yeah. Piece of advice for somebody who's uh, who's kind of at at their wits end as far as uh, coming down to use your metaphorical language who's who's coming down in order to uh, to undergo the, the scalpel uh, so to speak some some words of advice for that person. Um, so the deeper the descent, the higher the ascent. The deeper the descent, the higher the ascent. So if God is asking you or is guiding you or you find your life is at an incredibly low point, take uh, great hope and great courage in the fact that it may be that you have a higher mountain to climb than you've ever climbed before. And so you have to be brought lower than you've ever been before. There's a reason for it. There's a method behind the madness. I don't understand the ways of God. They're beyond me. I wouldn't write my story the way it played out, but he certainly knows how to write that. So just uh, trust that God knows what he's after. Um, he's trying to mine something from your life. And I think that that treasure, at least from my perspective, is the hardest thing to mine in the human heart to me is humility. Hmm. Because we have so much pride, we have so much hubris, we have so much ego. But if God can get to that pure gold in your life, which is humility, then the grace dance can begin because grace will dance with all except the proud. And if you're humble, you'll be teachable. If you're humble, you'll be liminal. You'll be in this uh, environment where you're movable and you're pliable and you're trainable and you're transformative, um, but but that's what he's really after. Now, there's a big jump between humiliation and humility. The enemy humiliates, God humbles. Shame will push you aside, but grace sets you apart. So sometimes we have to go through these parts of our story that we don't like, that feel very uncomfortable, that feel um, that they don't par- belong in part of the larger collective whole, 
but that's how God works. It's a paradox. I don't quite understand it, but he's got everything he needs. Uh, God owns everything, but he has, there's one thing that he doesn't have that he can only mine from a human being. And it's the one thing that he needs to do to complete his work here on planet earth. And it's this idea of human weakness. Hmm. So he needs human weakness to show his own strength. So he's born in a barn as a naked child. He shows up in a brewery where guys have a beer that offends people's religious minds and offends our sense of where God should or should not show up. He does that to offend our minds, to open up our hearts. He dies on a cross as a naked man to do the same because it appears to be a, a great, spectacular failure. But in essence, it's a highly it's the successful most triumphant victory. Yeah. yeah, but it's all couched in human weakness. It's the last place that we look for glory. It's the last place that we look for strength. It's the last place that we look for God to show up. So don't be afraid of your own human weakness because that's usually where God is most strong because that's where humility enters into the cracks of our life. Mm. So... We're in West Michigan. Uh, we're recording from West Michigan, uh, which is likely never more than 200 feet away from, uh, from a church. That said, some of our listeners are going, what's all this God stuff about? I might be interested in learning more, or Kevin said some things that kind of piqued my curiosity, or maybe I grew up you know, going to, going to church on Sundays, but I've kind of fallen away from that, and I'm uh, potentially intrigued by revisiting. Point us toward maybe a, a book or a story or a verse. Uh, just now that I've got a preacher uh, sitting in front of me, I'm kind of going, what resources would you recommend telling that same individual that you just gave advice to who's, who's maybe at the bottom of the barrel or at their wits end or kind of at the, the base of the mountain? What resource would you point them toward to get them back up toward uh, where, where ultimately uh, you believe that the Lord is taking them? Well, um, I first think they have to believe that maybe the primary question that Christ is asking of them, uh, let's just assume that they recognize something's broken and they're broken and something's not working right. They're not well. It's not that they're bad. They're just not well. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting people around them. Life is hurting. I would first ask them to conceptualize these words coming out of the mouth of Christ to them, which may be the one of the most important questions that he would ask of us and maybe the most important answer that we can give back to him. And his question would be this, do you want to get well? Mm. Just like period, punctuation point. Do you want to get well? Now that's a big question because if you, depending on how you answer that, you will either play the victim for the rest of your life or you will take ownership of your own story and your own issues, whatever they are and take ownership of those things and allow Christ to heal that shame that's attached to that and to actually make you well. Now, if you can answer affirmatively, yes, you want to get well, you don't want to play the victim, you're tired of the blame game, you're tired of shuffling around the blame to everybody else, you're willing to just say, look, uh, things happen to me that I didn't like, that hurt, and I need to learn how to forgive and move beyond. There are things that I've done that have hurt other people and I'm punishing myself for that. Whatever the case is, uh, the question is, do you want to get well? And if you answer that affirmatively, then I would ask you to consider four different streams to jump into to get well, uh, called the four streams of healing. So there's an anomaly in the book of Genesis that talks about this river, and out of this river flows four tributaries, the Tigris, Euphrates, and two other rivers that were not really mentioned. Yeah, well, they don't mention, and we don't know what they are. We don't this have is a, from the garden. Yeah. So it's an anomaly because uh, we live in Michigan. The Grand River is fed by multiple tributaries. I'm from the Lansing area, so you got the Red Cedar, the Looking Glass, if you're in the Grand Rapids, the Thorn Apple, and all these other, the Rogue, all these other rivers, all the flat, they all feed into the Grand River, which starts in the Jackson area and then spits itself out like a snake into the Lake Michigan through Grand Haven. But the book of Genesis has an anomaly where out of a river, 
comes four streams. Rather than streams forming the river, I look at Christ in a poetic way as being the river and from him all life flows. And out of those, out of the river comes these four streams and the first stream is church. And I know that seems obvious and that sounds like it's preaching to the choir and it's probably because of what it is. But I think the first thing you need to do is consider becoming part of a local body of Christ, which is most emblematic of the church as we know it. And what happens at church is uh, you experience the sacraments, uh, depending on your religious background or tradition, it could be the Eucharist, uh, water baptism, communion, uh, dedication, all those things happen, marriage, uh, funerals, all these things happen in the context of a church with a ministry. You also get great biblical teaching. You need someone to you know, basically unpack the scriptures to you in a collective setting. There's great discipleship that happens with that. There's also collective worship. It helps you to see that you're part of a larger whole uh, that's the first stream of healing. It's the most obvious. And most people park their truck there. So if I just show up on Sunday morning and I'm an anonymous individual and I give my money and I do all the things that most church people do, I listen to a sermon, I uh, praise God, I take part in the sacraments. That's a great, great start. But if you park your truck there, you'll never enter into the, some of these deeper levels of healing because shame in and of itself cannot be healed in a larger collective whole. That has to be done in a smaller group, in a community mm-hmm. where you share your story, people affirm your humanity. They let you know you're still a human being and shame is healed horizontally, whereas sin is forgiven vertically. And they both work in, in tandem with each other because sin and shame are are uh, identical twins. Uh, because we're ashamed, we sin. And because we sh- sin, we're ashamed. And so it's this never entering. Um, They're perpetual mates. Yeah, it's like a snake eating itself. You know, one of those kind of things. So um, where does shame heal? So sin is healed for uh, vertically through Christ, through his shed blood on the cross. Uh, it atones for our sins, and there's some bigger words you can use for that. Uh, justification and appropriation, all these theological terms. But it's essentially Christ taking on our sin upon himself and dying an innocent death so that we don't have to pay the penalty for that no longer. And that's a wonderful thing because now it clears this connection between us and the divine. But the horizontal part of the cross is the trickier part, and that has to be done in community. So you have to get out of your anonymity. You have to get out of oblivion. You have to get out of hiding and masking and posturing, and you need to enter into this second stream, which is called community, which is essentially doing life with people. It could be a small group. It could be a hunting group, a fishing group, a mountaineering club underwater basket weaving, uh, whatever you want to do. I don't care. Quilting. You just, you're doing life with people. Bible study group. Um, I have a bunch of men's groups that I'm a part of that I rotate in and out of. So people need to know you and you need to know them and you need to do life together. There's Get a to a place where you can become vulnerable. Yeah. It, a lot of fancy words and scary words like accountability and all that stuff can apply to that. But essentially what you're doing is you're letting yourself be known and you're interested in knowing other people so that what your shame can be healed, which is James chapter 5. Uh, confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. I can't yeah. forgive anyone's sins, but in the telling of my story, my shame can be released because now my humanity is coming to the surface and it's being braced by other humans. It's actually a divine interaction, even though no one's forgiving my sins, so there's nothing really atoning that's happening. It's just allowing my story to get to the surface. The third stream is a trickier one, and it's going to poke your owies because uh, counselors like Christ, uh, their job is to hurt you, to heal you, and they will ask you to jump into a muddy river like the prophet did to Naaman, who was a Persian army commander and was a very important man and had letters from one king to another and wanted the prophet and the kings to all give him name recognition because he was probably going to be a big-time donor. And instead, a servant girl comes out and says, the prophet said that you need to jump into the Jordan River seven times in your leprosy, which is emblematic of shame will be healed. And he was very angry about that because there were more 
there were clearer streams, more pure streams in his own country in Persia than there were in Israel, but he did it. And so I look at counseling as a muddy stream where if you want your shame and your leprosy to be healed, somebody's got to get in your junk. Mm. Somebody's got to go in as a soul surgeon and get that shrapnel out of your soul over a protracted period of time. If you're suffering from trauma, that is a tricky beast to deal with. It's slippery as a snake, and it's going to take some time. That shrapnel is going to have to come to the surface in its own time. But you need someone to come in as a soul surgeon that's Christ-centered, that can come in and extract that shrapnel so that you can feel again and so that you are, uh, you're, you're stopping the numbing effect. The fourth and one. What's, yeah, what's the fourth? Fourth strength? one is contemplation. So you know I'm a preacher because I like all the alliteration there. So church, <laughs> community, counseling, and the fourth stream is contemplation. And this is where everybody is quiet. There's no church. There's no community. There's no counselor. It's just you and Almighty God, and you are having an audience of one with the Creator of the universe and the Creator of your soul, and you are conversing with Him and He's conversing with you. And contemplation to me is simply allowing your mind to be quiet so your heart can think. Mm. Your heart is a mind of its own. So allow your heart to do its thinking and get out of your world of logic, trying to figure everything out. Quit demanding answers from God and let God answer your unanswerable questions with his unquestionable self. And when you're in that audience of one, some very profound things can happen that can only happen when it's just you and Almighty God speaking to each other and he's giving you himself as the answer and there's a tremendous amount of healing that can happen with that. I've never known anyone that's been healed of anything significantly spiritually that did not have an encounter with with God. Mm. You can't take it out of the equation. And I think we always want to be around people, and there's a place for that. I just described those other healing streams. Right, right. But at the core, at the end of the day, the, 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 the transformation that you seek is Jesus Christ on the other end of your tomb, you know, on your fourth day like Lazarus, everybody's given up hope. Nobody has any hope of seeing you come out the other side. Everybody's given up. It appears that God is too late. He's showing up into your story way too late for your own personal comfort zone. He could have healed you along the way. Sure, he could have done this. He could have done that. There's a whole bunch of would have, could have, should have, just like Mary and Martha were lamenting because their brother was Lazarus, who was a friend of Christ, and they were a friend of Christ. But Jesus shows up, quote unquote, late. Mm. And it's because his, his goal was not to heal Lazarus. His goal was to resurrect Lazarus. Yeah. Which brings us full circle. Our podcast began with this idea of resurrection and it ends with this idea of resurrection. You have to hear the words of Christ through the stone of your own heart, to the stone of your own tomb, so that that tomb that you're wallowing in in your own shame, like the belly of a whale, getting digested with, with despair, it, you need to allow yourself the ability to hear the voice of Christ calling you out by your true name and life will come back in you. When you hear his words, when you hear his voice, you can experience a powerful resurrection, but it only happens and it's only initiated when you hear his words. There's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there, um, but I'll do my best to just kind of wrap things up here. Kevin DeVries, we are so grateful uh, that you graced us with your presence today. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking a couple hours to share your story, uh, of that crazy story uh, on Mount Ararat, but also some of your wisdom that comes from a... a just a lifetime full of, uh, of tidbits that you have paid attention to. So thanks for paying attention, watching the signs and digging deep. And then more importantly, just thanks for, for giving of yourself and pouring into, uh, into the AD community. It's my hope and my prayer that the ears on which these words fall are blessed in a way where, uh, where lives are changed. So thanks for being part of that. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.